Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be here in Huntsville with the First Baptist Church. A few months ago, I was reading uh, an article. Do you guys know what a listicle is? A listicle. Impress your friends because you're going to know this. So a listicle are those articles that have lists. There's a name. They're called listicles. You know, the seven things you need to know about whatever. Isn't that cool that you now know that? I'm done. Thanks. That's all I had. Anyway, it was a listicle about the top ten places to live in America. Huntsville was number four. There are a few people in the first service that said, only four? Why? Couldn't we have been? That's greedy. I'm from Wichita, Kansas. We never make that list. We make other lists, but not that list. But it's been wonderful to be here this weekend to, uh, I feel like Travis is my, my brother from another mother because he's, he's just such a wonderful guy and Carrie and the, and the staff. Wow, you guys have such an incredible group of leaders at this church and the people, you, you people are even nice, even really Christian, which is great. Can't say that about everybody. So, um, Back in 1995, my wife and I, we were very excited. She was pregnant with our second child. We had a little boy, Jacob, who was four. And uh, we knew from sonograms that uh, my wife was carrying a little girl. And we'd chosen the name Madeline. So throughout that pregnancy, we were very excited, got the nursery prepared, painted it pink. We're ready for this little girl to come into our lives. But in a sonogram late in the seventh month, Um, My wife went to that by herself. We didn't think there was anything going to be wrong. She went to that, but she came back to the house just white. And she looked at me and she said, Jim, they think there's something wrong. We're going to have to do all these tests. So they did all these tests and they concluded from them that it was likely that uh, the child she was carrying had some kind of chromosomal disorder. They weren't sure what it was, but they said, you need to be prepared that she may not survive birth. So this was just a crushing blow to us. We didn't know how to respond. We were hanging on to any shred of faith that we had. Well, Madeline was born and she lived. She was born with a rare chromosomal disorder that meant she would have a lot of challenges and grow up with special needs. And so we spent a lot of time in hospitals and doing everything we could to kind of give her a good life. Well, about six months after Madeline was born, I got invited to lunch um, by a pastor, and I'd known him. We weren't good friends, but I'd known him. And he said, I'd love to take you to lunch. So we went to lunch, and over the salad course of the meal, he said this to me. He said, so Jim, uh, who sinned, you or your wife, that caused God to do this in your life? And it was this stunning moment took my breath away. Part of me was thinking, did he just say that? But then I realized he was serious. And I took a deep breath and I just said, that's not the God I believe in. What's interesting about his question is that it is an old narrative. There's an old, old narrative all the way back in the book of Job. You remember in Job, we know the, the preamble, we know the beginning story that there's this cosmic little bet happening, but, but the people don't know. Job doesn't even know it. And Job goes through all this suffering, 
And all of his friends can say, his friends in quotation marks, his friends just say, what did you do, Job? What did you do? It's an old, old narrative. And Jesus faced this exact same narrative in the Gospel of John. He is and his disciples are uh, walking along and they meet a man born blind, congenital blindness. And his disciples say to Jesus, so Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus has an opportunity to affirm that narrative if he wants to. By the way, a little strange side note about that, when it actually says, who sinned, he or his parents? And that bugged me. I tried to figure, why, why would they think that he sinned? Like how, and I read that the rabbis actually debated whether or not you could sin in the womb. Isn't that weird? Like, I don't know what you would do. Mom ate something spicy and you're mad at mom. I don't know. How do you, how do you sin in the womb? But so they asked, that's why they asked the question, you know, who sinned, this man or... Anyway, Jesus has a chance to say, well, he could have said, yeah, the, the dad, he, he quit tithing. So we did that. Or the mom was a Sabbath breaker. He doesn't. He says this. He says, neither. But this man's condition is such that God will be glorified through him. And Jesus heals him. And here we are today still talking about that. Jesus, God was glorified through his condition because Jesus is always right. So he has a chance to affirm that old narrative about God and he denies it. Two other occasions, he has the same thing. One is what we would call a natural disaster. A tower fell on some people. Innocent people, they just died, this tower fell. And people asked Jesus, what did they do to cause God to do this? And then the third occasion was there were a group of innocent people who were slaughtered. They didn't do anything, presumably, but they were slaughtered. And the disciples asked once again, what, what did they do? It's a deeply entrenched narrative that we have that if something bad happens, we wonder, what did they do for God to cause this? Jesus denies that narrative not once, not twice, but three times, just to be certain. We have three examples in the Gospels. In addition to Jesus rebuking that idea, saying this is just, that is wrong, he, in everything about his teaching, is teaching us something quite different about the nature of God. Pastor Travis has been teaching on the parable of the prodigal son. It's the most beloved of all of Jesus' parables. It's the most preached upon text. And there's a reason for it, is because it's telling the truth about the character of God. Because in that story, the son does something terrible to the father. And the son doesn't get what the son deserves. There is no justice in that. What the son deserves was to be shunned, maybe even to be stoned for his behavior. But instead he gets a party. Jesus tells a story like that, blows people's minds. How could God be like that? But then we have the elder brother in the story, and that, that's an important character, because the elder brother is the one saying, hey, he should get what he deserves. God is a God who doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we don't deserve, which is grace and mercy and love. And Jesus' actions also tell a story. Jesus is invited 
by a Pharisee into his home for a meal. And in comes this woman who's obviously a woman of ill repute. She comes in, breaks open this jar of ointment, washes his feet, and the disciples are like, I cannot believe he would be even having any connection with her. Why would he? And Jesus is saying, she's welcome into the kingdom. The woman at the well in John's gospel, a woman who's not a Jewish woman, she's Samaritan, and a woman. No rabbi would talk to a woman, much less a non-Jewish woman. And he tells her, oh, would you like some living water? At every turn, Jesus is breaking out of that narrative saying, everyone is welcome into life with God, regardless of what you've done. So he rebukes the narrative. His teaching goes against it. His actions go against it. And that's the reality. But we live in a world still today where that pastor's question is real. There was a study done at Baylor a few years ago, and they asked American Christians across the board, all denominations, what do you think God is like? And one of the choices, one box they could tick was this one. God is an angry judge who's poised to punish us. God is an angry judge who's watching us and is going to punish us for our mistakes. God is watching every move we make, every breath we take, every vow we break. How far do I have to go into that song? <laughs> he's watching you and he's going to get you. That is a deeply entrenched narrative. And th that God is mad, that God is just angry is a dominant narrative. Several years ago, I preached in a, um, an African-American church, and the preacher said, I want you to get used to, to call and response with the congregation, because if you preach in an African-American church, they talk to you. Like, you don't, <laughs> you don't just preach words. They, it's an interactive thing. So he gave him this refrain. I bet you guys know this one. It goes like this. God is good. And all the time, God is good. But you know, as I think about 38%, 4 out of 10 Christians think God is mad. I think that it should be God is mad all the time. <laughs> and all the time, God is mad. He's up in the heavens. He's chewing antacids. He's sick of us. <laughs> That's the narrative. And yet here comes Jesus with a completely different reflection of the character of God. Okay, so you may ask, why is, if Jesus denies it, if his teaching denies it, why is it still prevalent? There are three reasons, I think. One is a phenomenon called projection. Projection is that we have an image and we project it onto something else. That's it's classic psychology 101, projection. So what is our experience of other people? Well, when we're a little kid, we have parents and they judge us and they punish us if we fail. And then we have teachers and they're grading us, and we do something bad, and they send us to here. And then we get coaches, maybe, if we're playing sports. And then bosses, when we get evaluations. So the world that we live in is a world of a lot of judgment and punishment. So we just project that onto God. God must be just a really big parent. Who, and you can't fool him. He sees everything. So I think projection is the number one reason why we have that. We just bypass what we're seeing in the scriptures, in the gospels, but we go there. The second is control. 
if God is that way, I get to be in control. I get to determine God on the basis of my behavior. My behavior controls God. If I do something really good, went to church every Sunday and Wednesday. And any time it was open. And we think, oh, he's got to bless me now because I did good. He therefore must bless me. See, that's what it is. It's control. And we really like control, especially in a world where we don't feel much of it. Projection, control. The third one is judgment. We also like to judge. What was that pastor doing with me when he was having lunch with me? I mean, he was appearing to be compassionate. But what he was really doing was judging me. He was saying, okay, what did you do, Jim? You must have, you did something. Now, what I didn't say, but actually I probably would have wanted to say <laughs> to him was like, oh, are you without sin? Who are you to, to judge me in this regard? Projection is one reason. Control, judgment. You put them together, and that's why the narrative is still around, despite the fact that Jesus is telling us something completely different. So I'm a college professor, and I get to teach and theology, and it's wonderful, and I talk a lot about this. And I had a student who went through he, the book that you guys are going to be studying, he studied that and he began teaching that and going out to churches. And so he went to a youth group and he did this, this exercise, it was so brilliant. He went to a youth group and he got in front of the group and he said, you know, on this chalkboard he wrote, God the Father on the far left side and then on the far right side he wrote the name Jesus. And he said to this group of about 20 youth, he said, okay, what comes to mind when you think of God the Father? And they said, oh, uh, well, he's, he's, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's, um, he's angry, that one came up, he's mean, he's distant. All of these kind of negative words started coming up on the board. And then he went, okay, and he walked over to the other side and he said, um, what is Jesus like? And they said things like compassionate, merciful, forgiving, kind, all these things. And um, then what he did, this was brilliant, Mike then just stepped back, he opened his Bible, and he read John 14, 9. And John 14, 9 reads, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, Jesus is saying, you've seen the Father. Because Jesus is, as it says in Hebrews, the exact representation of God, the Father. And in Colossians 1, it says he's the image of the invisible God. The image, the Greek word is icon. He's the snapshot of God. So there's only one question, one answer, excuse me, to the question, what is God like? It's only one answer. What is God like? Jesus. That's what God is like. Because the Trinity is completely united. That is who God is like. John... Jesus' disciple, who no doubt witnessed the man born blind incident, walked with Jesus all those years. When John, the old man John, writes his epistle, 1 John, he writes these three words, God is love. It doesn't say God loves, because then you could say sometimes he doesn't. It says God is love. That is the character and essence of God. 
Some people think, oh, well, Jim, you're just, that's a kind of a teddy bear God. Your God's just nice and loving and kind. What about the wrath of God? My response to that is, oh, absolutely. There is the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? The wrath of God is God's right disposition towards sin. The correct response to sin is wrath because sin destroys us and God loves us. We're his kids. So sin is that which hurts his kids. He hates it. But I'll ask my students this. Does God need to be mad to run the world? Does God need, need to be mean to run this universe? Many people think, well, he, he, yeah, he has to be. Because anger is what you need. You need anger to control people. Anger doesn't work. It's a short-term fix. But it doesn't solve it. Real change happens in a condition where we realize that we are loved. So who are you? You get that question a lot. So who are you? What's your story? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you who you are. Is that okay? You are divinely designed. You were chosen before the foundation of the world. God knew that you would exist in the exact form at the exact time that you came to be. And it was God's plan. You're divinely formed, divinely designed, and divinely desired. God loves you more than you could ever know. And when we look at Jesus and when we look at the cross, that's what we should see. That we're loved beyond what we deserve. Because what is God like? Jesus. A.W. Tozer, the great writer, said this. The most important thing about a person. I love when someone speaks in hyperbole. The most important thing about a person is dot, dot, dot. What comes into their mind when they think about God. The most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. And what should come into your mind is Jesus. A God of love and compassion and kindness and mercy and forgiveness. That's who you are. That's who God is. So back to our story. So Madeline struggled with this chromosomal disorder, in and out of the hospitals. Doctors said she'll never live beyond the age of two. I think just despite those doctors, she lived beyond the age of two. But it wasn't too long after that that she did die. And of course, this shouldn't happen, right? Parents shouldn't bury kids. But that was our plight. That was our situation. But my wife and I both had walked long with Jesus. We believe in him and the resurrection and we're confident that we will see her again. Confident that she now rules and reigns in the heavens and one day we will see her and she will dance and sing. That's what we believe. A couple of years after Madeline passed, my wife and I talked, do you want to have another child? And it was scary for both of us even to have the conversation, but we said, yeah, both of us, we, we wanted to. So she was pregnant and throughout that pregnancy, as you can imagine, we were nervous. I mean, we were on pins and needles throughout that entire pregnancy. We got to the end of the seventh month and we got to that same sonogram that we'd had before with Madeline and we were nervous for it. We went into that room, in came the technician. She did not know our story. She didn't know anything about us, the people there. She's just doing her job. So she puts, you know, the, the jelly on the belly and she's, you know, doing the sonogram thing and looking at a screen and I don't know what it's, it just looks fuzzy TV to me. But she's sitting there and she's going, okay, well, size is perfect. 
Okay? Perfect head, perfect hands, perfect feet, perfect heart. We were like, keep saying perfect. We like that. In the end, she said, everything is great. Absolutely great. And this huge sigh of relief went out from both of us. And then she said to us, um, well, I know the gender. Do you, do you guys know the gender? Do you want to know? And we figured, you know, since God already knew, we could know. So we said, yeah, we'd like to know. And um, she said, it's, it's a little girl. And we looked at each other, started to well up. And then this lovely woman, this nurse, she just, she said, have you guys picked out a name? We were so nervous throughout that pregnancy, we hadn't picked a name. But when she said it was a little girl, and then she said, have you picked out a name? My wife and I looked at each other and we said a name that we had never said before. And we said it at the exact same moment, Hope. And little Hope is now 21. She's a sophomore in college. And she lives out her name. What does hope mean? The definition of hope. Certainty in a good future. Hope isn't wishful thinking. Hope is certainty in a good future. And that's because we believe in a good and beautiful God. You can't have hope if your God isn't good because the future cannot be good. I believe in a good future. I believe that we live by hope. Your soul longs for hope. What's the most important thing about you? What comes into your mind when you think about God? I pray that through this congregational conversation that you have, that you will come to a place where the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about God is Jesus. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.